This talk was given by Prabhu Gikhan Vasan at Zen Mountain Monastery. Gikhan is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. My name is Gikhan, and um, I was asked to offer uh, the talk today. Uh, for those, um, oh, good morning, everyone out there as well. Um, for those of you who might not know me, um, I'm a lay practitioner. Um, most of my training was done actually at Fire Lotus Temple in Brooklyn, so I just wanted to send a special shout out to the uh, Brooklyn Sangha. Um, I'm now um, more within striking distance of the monastery, so I practice here. Um, and um, I guess my work has been in social work and now more recently in, in the field of public health. Um, I hope everyone's having a good, a good holiday season. And if this is your first time here, either here or first time online for the Sunday program, I, I hope you're enjoying it. I, I really hope it's, um, it's meeting you uh, where you need to be met to, to some degree. I want to start with a, with a short sutra uh, from the Pali Canon, the uh, Kandima Sutra, the, the moon god's prayer for protection. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living near Savati. At that time, Kandima, the moon god, was seized by the demon lord Rahu. Thereupon, Kandima called to mind the Blessed One. O Buddha, my hero, you are wholly free in every way. I have fallen into distress. Be my refuge. Thereupon, the Blessed One addressed the demon lord on behalf of Kandima. Orahu, the moon god, has gone for refuge to the Tathagata, the consummate one. The Buddhas radiate compassion on the world. Release Kandima. Thereupon, Rahu released the moon god and rushed to the demon lord Vipassita and stood beside him trembling with fear, shocked and awestruck. Vipassita addressed him, Rahu, why did you suddenly release Kandima? Why have you come trembling? And why are you standing here terrified? Rahu answered, I have been spoken to by the Buddha. If I had not released the moon god, my head would have split into seven pieces and I should have no happiness in life. Therefore, I released the moon god. So, um, as many of us know, this a few months ago during our fall training period, we had a running theme of the moon. And um, during that time, I decided to uh, just check out some of the uh, Pali Sutras that feature the moon. And this particular one kind of endeared itself to me almost at once, and it's been sort of staying with me. Um, apparently, the sutra was occasioned by a lunar eclipse, from what I understand, when the moon is kind of fully or partially covered by darkness. Um, I have no idea of how they understood the eclipse way back in the Buddha's time, but personally I find it delightful to think that the Buddha might have seen an eclipse, understood it as a demon seizing the moon, and out of compassion for the moon uttered these words, and lo and behold, the demon released the moon. The eclipse passed, the Sangha rejoiced, the monks were completely confirmed in their faith in the Buddha, and we now have this lovely teaching about working with our demons, which is what I wanted to look at today. 
I have fallen into distress. Be my refuge. Now, I find myself moved when I, when I read that. I'm, I'm, I'm struck by how plain and vulnerable the moon is at that time. Um, there's nothing refined or subtle about what the moon is asking for. Um, and in some ways, I find myself a little humbled because you know, it's, it's far more open and honest than I generally tend to be about my own uh, fears and distress. You know, when, I, when I hear the moon, I, I really hear the, the unvarnished, undefended plea of someone in trouble, someone who uh, needs help, who knows that they can't rescue themselves, right? someone who needs a lifeline. You know, they're, they're, as I was sort of working with this, different echoes began to come back to me, you know. First, it, it, it sort of has an echo of the, the final step in becoming a formal student here, right? Where after all of like the preliminary things, you're, you're, you're still not done yet. You still have to go in front of your teacher and you do nine bows in front of your teacher and you very personally ask for the teachings. You very personally, I think, have to have some version of, I've fallen into distress, be my refuge. It also reminds me of um, when I worked as a, a clinical social worker, just the various people I saw in, in therapy and, and how they kind of were when they first walked in, right? the first meeting between a therapist and a client. Um, and how, you know, in some ways, you know, you, 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 you can't hide no matter how you try, but um, I, um, personally, I was, a, I was a terrible therapy client. I mean, I, I, I pretty much let therapists know that from the get-go, like just, you know, I'm, I'm gonna be a terrible therapy client, but you know, there, are, there are other people who came in the first time and their knees just flowed. Right? They were at the point where they, they, they didn't have the option of being defended, right? They, this is who I am, this is what I need, I'm in trouble. And it also reminds me, just kind of um, more generally, you know, I was thinking about this past September um, when the anniversary of 9-11 happened, I was thinking about um, right after the 9-11 attack, like the very next day or a couple of days later, Fire Lotus Temple was packed with people. I don't know if any of you were around during that time in Brooklyn, but you know, usually we were lucky if we got like two people showing up or three people showing up for evenings on Zen, right? The Zenda was like packed to the point where we couldn't even do beginning instruction in the usual room. Miyotai-sensei had to actually do beginning instruction in the zendo, like during the first period of zazen, because there are so many people, you couldn't fit them anywhere else. Right? So a, a, an interesting question is why? Right? What brought so many people to such a place at such a time? Right? What, what brings us to such a place at, at this time, no matter what, what time that is for us? If I had to say, I, I would say that I didn't ask anybody, but, but if I had to say, I'd say that people showed up then because they were scared. Their lives, our lives at the time, had fallen into distress. And so they came to a temple. They came for refuge, even if they didn't quite know what that meant. The Heart Sutra, which for those who are new, is one of the foundational teachings of Buddhism. It's the first chant that we did today, 
Right? So generally when people come in here for beginning instruction, that's the kind of like the very first teaching. And it's interesting that you know, people chant that even before getting Zazen instruction. Right? You know, that's the very first teaching that we offer when you come here. So the Heart Sutra, in its very first line, offers exactly that. Offers exactly a refuge. Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva, doing deep prajna paramita, clearly saw emptiness of all the five conditions, thus completely relieving misfortune and pain. You know, it's, it's worth taking a moment to appreciate what that opening line offers us. Right? It offers us the complete relief of misfortune and pain. Right? So at the get-go, right, we're offered a, a, almost per, a, a perfect refuge. Because that word complete includes, it has to include, every particular misfortune and pain that any one of us can bring here. And in fact, I would say it includes every particular misfortune and pain that everyone who will never walk in here experiences. Right? That's the word complete. That's hard to take in. It was hard, it was hard for me to take in. I mean, I, I realized as I was kind of working on this talk that for a long time, I kind of glossed over the, that first part of it. You know, it's... Um, like, you know how like in like some of the sutras they have these big miracles, like, you know, the, the, the Buddha touches his toe to the ground and all of a sudden, like, you know, universes of flowers begin raining on people and, like, you know, lion thrones appear and just all... But, you know, you're not really supposed to believe that that actually happened, right? It's like, okay, it, it's, it's nice, but it didn't really happen. That was kind of how I viewed, like, this first part of the Heart Sutra, right? I sort of found myself glossing over it when we were chanting it, right? Like, they don't really mean that, right? You know, that's, that's meant to kind of increase our fervor, et cetera, but doesn't really mean it. And in some ways, you know, I, I was sort of imagining, what if it didn't say completely relieving misfortune and pain? What if it said largely relieving misfortune and pain? <laughs> well, you know, thus taking the edge off your misfortune and pain, right, that kind of thing. In some ways, that would have been easier for me. Right? That would have been more plausible, right? Because that's, that's how problems get solved in my world, right? I see a problem, I bring myself to it, or eventually deal, put my problem-solving capacities into effect, get over that problem, and I'm pretty much good until the next problem happens, and I do the same thing. And you know, if I can do that until the day I die, I, I guess it'll, it'll all be okay, because I, I, my, my problems would have been dealt with, right? So that's, 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 how I, that's how problems get solved, I think, in my world and maybe many of our worlds. So to hear a teaching like this can be difficult. So maybe the first thing is to consider, how do we, how do we approach this? And how do we approach the vastness of this teaching? The vastness of the refuge that this practice offers us. A few months ago, we had uh, Guogu, who was the, uh, the, the teacher of the Tallahassee Zen Center, and he came here and he gave a, a, a pretty remarkable retreat. Um, and one of the things he mentioned in the retreat was what he called the three layers of Buddhism. Right? He said there's a Theravadan layer, which he called the path of abandonment. Right? Not this, not that, not this, not that. That's the Heart Sutra, which, which, which I'll come back to. Then he said there's a Mahayana layer, 
which he called the path of transformation. And then he said there's the Zen, or in his school, the Chan layer, which he called the path of recognition. Um, he didn't elaborate on this a, a huge amount, but just kind of just kind of working with my understanding of it, I sort of see this as, as maybe like a framework or a way to understand how a practice, how we can approach practice, the vastness of practice, as we kind of work with our minds, work with our lives, work with our demons over time. And I think we actually start backwards. We actually start with a path of recognition, right? With recognition practices, right? Beginning instruction, what's the basic instruction? See the thought, right? So already we are starting off recognizing right? with a recognition practice of seeing the thought. And that might be different for people, right? That might be different for how people imagine meditation might work. Um, I remember early in my career as a social worker, I was asked to do a meditation offering for the social workers at my hospital I was working at. And I was paired with another um, therapist um, who, was, who went first. And she did a more like guided relaxation. Like, you know, imagine like a beach, imagine a syrup, whatever, all that stuff, right? And so she did that for a while. And, you know, afterwards, she asked, checked in, so how was that? Because, oh, that was really relaxing. You know, I felt my tension go away. I felt my stress go away. That was, you know, I really appreciate that I was able to do that. And then it was my turn. So I basically offered them beginning instruction, a very modified version of it. You know, just count the breaths, right? Um, knowing full well that I'm like, wow, man, I got a tough act to follow. You know, it's um, how do I compete with, with a day at the beach, right? It's, um, so I did it. And um, afterwards, I asked them, so what, did you, what was your experience with that? And no one said anything for a while. And I'm like, oh, boy, all right, well, so much for that. I guess I just turned an entire room of social workers off to ever thinking about Zen. But then one of them chimed in. You know, I, I, I saw how much I think. Right? And other ones looking, and were like, yeah, like, that's, that's right. We saw how much we think. And so that's, that's where we start. We start by seeing how much we think. And not just how much we think, but what we think. Right, and how that thinking keeps thinking. And at, a, and at a certain point, one of the social workers asked me, so I get the purpose of that first meditation, the relaxation, right? That I get. What's the purpose of, of what, what you just taught us? And I'm like, oh boy, think fast. <laughs> and I basically just said one word, I said clarity. I left it at that I, 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 because I, I, I didn't think I should try to elaborate more. Um, and and that's, a, that's an accurate answer, but it does beg the question, clarity into what? And, and for what purpose? What, 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 what is the purpose of, of that recognition? There's a passage in the Lankavatara Sutra where a bodhisattva basically asks the Buddha that question, or a version of that question. Um, he asks the Buddha, why do people fall into discriminating thoughts? And, and for those of us who are new, um, discriminating thoughts, you can just understand it as, you know, why do we fall into thoughts that are divisive, right? that divide us from just about everything? Right? How does this process happen? That's what the Buddha said. He said, we cling to names, signs, and ideas. As we move along in this way, we feed on objects and fall into the notion of an ego and what belongs to it. We make discriminations of good and bad and cling to the agreeable. And as we thus cling, there's a reversion to ignorance 
and karma becomes accumulated. And as the accumulation of karma goes on, we become imprisoned in discrimination and are unable to free ourselves from birth and death. There's a lot there. Um, that's, that's a dense passage, but I like it because it really does kind of in a very brief way map out how very small moments of thought, very small moments of um, not recognizing what our minds are doing are connected to larger cycles of discontent and suffering. And it kind of puts the pieces together a little bit. Um, Years ago, I had a friend here in the Sangha who was telling me once after a session, which is one of our week-long meditation intensives, she was assigned the position of being an usher for the session. And that's a demanding position, right, during session. It basically it involves, you know, when everyone else leaves the zendo to take a break or whatever, you have to be in the zendo, straightening every single cushion, right, making sure everything is lined up and you have to go from cushion to cushion. And, you know, she was hating it. Right, she was just she was just absolutely hating the fact that she was assigned this position, and it, it, and you know she was doing it, but she was just like hating it all the while. And apparently, it was obvious enough because one of the senior monastics, she said, came over to her and just placed her his hand on her shoulder and said, "Try doing it without an opinion," and then just walked away. Right, that's a nice that's a nice kind of uh, a, a teaching. Um, he wasn't saying, you know, never have an opinion. Well, I think what he was drawing her attention to was how that basic unchecked thoughts that she was having, unrecognized, unchecked, um, what it was doing to her at that moment, right? And she was inviting her to experience, what if she was able to let go of those thoughts? How would that exact same service position, you know, she, she, he wasn't saying, don't worry, I'll, I'll help you straighten this out. You know, don't worry, I, I got half the zendo, the other half, it'll be okay. How is this exact thing that she has to do? How will it be different? How will her reality of it be different if she can just simply do it without an opinion? In another translation of that sutra I opened with, the moon actually doesn't say I've fallen into distress. The moon says I've wandered into confinement. Be my refuge, right? So that's, that's where we start. We start by recognizing how the small things, right? Breathing, walking, small moments of distraction, small movements of mind, right? Can either be confining or they can be freeing, right? They can either be the seeds of our suffering or our freedom from that suffering, depending on, very simply, if we can actually see what our minds are doing. And so we start with the path of, of, of recognition. And sometimes that doesn't work. Right? Um, in beginning instruction, we, we, we talk about how, you know, um, sometimes letting go of thoughts just doesn't work. Right? You know, you're seeing, you're letting it go, seeing, letting it go, seeing, letting it go, and it's, it's not going. Right? So what do you do? Right? Um, and in, in sort of practice in general, if we keep it up, we will hit layers that are more challenging. Um, sometimes we can call them defenses, early patterns, sometimes generational or cultural patterns. Right? That it's simply recognizing it isn't enough to relieve ourselves of it. Right? Um, and this can be a delicate area in practice. Right? Especially if our history or our present life 
is one where you know um, we really use our use those defenses. I'll just call it. That's that's my world. That's my term. We use it in order to keep ourselves safe. Right? If our history is marked by a fear or a lack of safety, or maybe on the other extreme, if our history is 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 one of privilege. Right? And a lot of the anti-racism, and hopefully um, our our, our um, anti-sexism, gender bias type of work, which I hope we'll take up, hopefully um, with the same fervor that we've taken up anti-racism work, one of the things we see is you know, how privilege can be as confining, right? sometimes even more so, and how it can be as difficult to let go of those behaviors and cultural, um, 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 cultural patterns that keep us in positions of privilege. Right, so how do we work with this? This is where I think the, the transformational layer of practice can often be helpful. Right, it's a more active way of working with deeply, deeper entrenched habits of mind and habits of behavior. Um, so for example, we chant the four immeasurables. And for those of you who are new here, um, it, it basically goes, uh, may all beings be free from suffering and the root of suffering. May all beings know happiness and the root of happiness. May all beings live in sympathetic joy, rejoicing in the happiness of others. May all beings live in equanimity, free of passion, aggression, and delusion. Right. We didn't always chant this. And in fact, for most of the time we were here, that wasn't part of our, of our practice that we do. And I really appreciate the fact that Shugen Roshi, the abbot, um, has brought that in, as well as other practices, right, of ways of more actively addressing things. You know? And so the four measurables, you know, it's kind of instinctive to address it outwards. You can address it inward. You can address it to your own demons. Right? If you're really struggling with something, something that you know is not helpful, something that you've been told by other people is not helpful for them, right? but you simply can't let it go, right? you can direct that to yourself. Right? May this part of me be free from suffering and the root of suffering. May this part of me know happiness and the root of happiness, whatever that is. Right? Um, one thing I, I, I do, which is helpful for me, so I'll just offer it occasionally, I'll do this, is if I'm in a very difficult interpersonal kind of relationship with somebody, oftentimes at work, when I worked as a therapist, sometimes with um, clients who were where it was just really, and we were at this place where, you know, they didn't like me, I didn't like them, it was just, it, it was, it was just, it, it was hard going. Sometimes with coworkers, I felt the same way. I would do what I call putting a rakasu on the enemy. Right? This actually just happened spontaneously once when I was with a, a, a client. And, um, you know, I just, um, I just imagined that person wearing a rakasu. Right? And something shifted. Right? And so I began to sort of practice with that. Right? Whenever I'm in like a difficult space, that person who I've sort of made into the enemy at that moment, just imagine them wearing one of these, wearing a rakasu. Right? It, it's, I want to clarify, this is not making them Buddhist. Right? It's not making them anything. Right? They don't even know what's happening. Right? What it's doing is, right, it's, 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 about, me, it's, about, um, it's about me at that moment. Right? 
because I realized that, you know, if this person were part of this order, and if they had taken the precepts, and if they were wearing one of these, I'd be having a very difficult, a different conversation with them, even if we hit a moment of impasse with each other. Well, why? Right? It's because I would realize that, you know, we both are in a very, um, it would change the relational space between us, right? You know, when we put the rakasu on, we chant, you know, vast is the robe of liberation, right? It would bring them in, they've always been there, but for me, it would suddenly bring them into that space of liberation, which when they were an enemy, I had cast them out of, in my mind, right? So, again, you know, it's helped me, um, I'm offering it. Um, and again, this is a way, um, is, is how I sort of see that, that transformational layer of practice. Actively working right, with the power of the mind, right? It's the same power of the mind that can make someone an, an enemy that can put a rakasu on them. Right? You're simply taking a mind that is now running away on suffering, on, on thoughts that are creating and generating suffering, and you're using that same power of that mind to create something else. Um, you know, a question that I found interesting about the, that sutra I started with is, why did the demon release the moon? Right? You know, he said, you know, the, the, um, I released it because I was spoken to by the Buddha. Right? And it was interesting, the, the first several times I read this, I'm like, all right, well, the Buddha put him in his place. You know, he, he was spoken to, you know, the, the, the Buddha won. Right? But then I was sort of digging into it for this talk. I said, well, what did the Buddha do? He didn't threaten Rahu. He didn't overpower him. He didn't argue with him. He didn't even try to talk him out of it. Come on, just, just let the demon go. Let the moon go. It'll be better for everybody. You know, come on now. It's just, he, he, what he said was the Buddha's radiate compassion on the world. Release the moon. So what, what happened? And what happened there? I think that in order to understand what happened there, this is where we need to take up maybe the, the path of abandonment that Guobu talked about or, or he, he referenced. Right? What, what the demon did is essentially it's the, it's the same journey that the Heart Sutra takes us on. Right? Uh, the, the Heart Sutra takes us on a journey where everything that we take as solid and reliable as an accurate indication of who I am, um, our senses, right? the, the objects of our senses, which is the world around us, our world of things, our mental formations and constructs, our endless recreation of the self, the very spiritual path that we're on, and the very insights we've attained. It takes all of that one by one by one by one by one, and basically says, not this, not that, not this, not that, not this, not that. In other words, it, it, it takes us on a journey where every one of those things are seen as empty. And um, again, for, for, for people who are sort of new to that word emptiness, maybe a way to understand what that means is they're seen as insufficient to capture the vastness of who we are. Right? One by one by one. You know, I had, a, I had a therapy patient once, um, a young woman in her 20s. I'll, I'll call her Liz. 
Um, she was um, a, um, a very conventionally attractive woman who um, spent a, an enormous amount of money that, and resources that she really didn't have, as well as energy um, on um, clothing, makeup, um, you know, designer things, things like that, right? And, it, and you know, it, it sort of, it, it was um, getting her in trouble, financial trouble, it was creating relational problems, et cetera. And so, you know, we, among other things, you know, we, we addressed, kind of, we're trying to work on this. And, you know, at one point, I was sort of just trying to kind of um, um, help her to maybe dig into what's driving her to do that. And she looked at me and she said, um, you don't understand. It's what I wear. It's who I am. It's what I wear. It's who I am. It would be easy to dismiss a statement like that, except for the fact that for her it was absolutely true. Right? I've sort of reflected on that statement and, and her over the years. Um, and honestly, from her perspective, what she said was absolutely true. And when I say true, I mean true as anything that, that I've heard in, you know, in, in Guardian Council, in Open Sozon, in any of those forums where people speak from the heart. Right? That's where she was speaking from. So uh, I think uh, maybe a, a useful question might be, what would we substitute for what I wear? You don't understand it's... It's who I am. Whatever we might put in that blank, right, no matter how um, sophisticated, no matter how um, spiritual, lofty, no matter how dharmic, whatever we put in that blank, um, one thing I've grown to see, it, it will be the exact place of our suffering. Well, it, it might take us a long time to see that. And it's taken me years sometimes to see that, right? And it often doesn't happen until the suffering kind of bubbles up to a place where I can see it. And then working with it, say, oh, it's because, right? There was something I was anchoring myself on, right? Some basic way that, some basic identity that the world had to conform to. And it wasn't, whatever reason. And therefore, I'm now in conflict with the world or conflict with myself. This is why we practice a, a, a path of abandonment. Right. One by one, we release. Right? It's, um, you know, the, the path of abandonment might sound, um, might sound bad. Right? Abandoning everything might... God, you know, like I'm going to be on some desert island of the soul, you know, where like everything and everything that's ever given me beauty and pleasure is just like burnt to a crisp or something, right? Now, the, the path of abandonment is a path of release. It might be a better way to look at it, right? We're releasing, right? By degrees, whatever we hold on to as an identity, as an enemy, right? Because with one does come the other. Right? Because there will come a time where the world doesn't do what you want it to do to hold that identity. We release whatever we're holding as an object to our subjective frame of self, whether that's an internal thing or an external thing. We let it go. And you know, I, I think at first maybe we, we do this because the small moments, right? 
you know, we, we, we really want to get to the number 10 when we're counting our breaths. We know this is what we got to do to get there, you know, and so we do it. Hopefully we do it then because we see that, you know, we, we start to see how holding on is generating suffering. Right? And there's often, and I think maybe um, as we practice, we begin releasing because we realize that what we're holding on to can't be held on to. That's never worked. And because the person who's doing the holding can't be held on to either, right? That's never worked either, right? And it's not that it doesn't work because it's not getting us what we want. It doesn't work because it's not the way things are. We're setting up a false construct of who we are and who the world is and what the world is that simply isn't in accord with reality. Therefore, it is bound to fail because we're moving through reality. This, I think, is what the demon's realization was. If I had not released the moon god, my head would have split into seven pieces, and I should have no happiness in life. Therefore, I released the moon god. Yet the demon realized what we all realize in practice. The more we grasp, the more our mind will be fractured, and our lives will follow that fracturing. You know, the, the, the Lankavatara Sutra, there's that wonderful observation by the Buddha that if we can continue that way of, of using our minds, we will feed on objects and fall into the notion of an ego. I think the word feed is really important, right? Because feeding implies that we will feel a lack. Right? We will feel hungry, maybe even starving, and because we will feel that there's something missing. So we will keep feeding. Right. Maybe what we're ultimately, what we're abandoning on the path of abandonment is that notion that there's something missing. And then, you know, we, we, we realize that, you know, the more we release into not this, not that, not this, not that, I think the more we can open up to the possibility that we may, in fact, be all this, all that, all this. O oh, Buddha, my hero, you are wholly free in every way. I have fallen into distress. Be my refuge. I think many of us, maybe most of us, turn to spiritual practice because we, we intuit that a distressed, fractured way of life can't be the only way to live. Right? And now uh, we have faith, or may maybe we just have a desperation that someone somewhere has to be free and might offer us a way to be free as well. But in Buddhism, we call that raising the Bodhi mind. Right? It's the turning towards a freedom that we might not be able to articulate. Right? We might not know how to put it into words, but we know it has to be there. Right? Because life can't be, life, life simply can't be a life of suffering. We intuit that, that the reality can't work that way. Right? And I think practice is simply how we align ourselves with that freedom. Right? We, don't, we don't need to create it. Right? That's in some ways what we need to let go of, right? is all those strategies of creating it. Right? We just simply need to align ourselves with the freedom that reality has always been. So 
So um, in the coming days, you know, the, the holiday season is upon us. In the coming days, some of us will be going to family, which um, may have its own degree of, um, of distress. Some of us will be entering the, the deep silence of Rahatsu, the long meditation intensive we, we do here. Um, some of us may be spending the holidays alone, either by choice or otherwise. Right? In the midst of all of that, right, we're going to encounter ourselves. Right? Maybe a, we could say the, the only thing we'll be encountering is ourselves one way or the other. So whatever takes hold of us, right, whatever demons seize us during this, during this time, if we can release it, release it. Right? Let's release it. Let's release what we can release. And if we can't, let's take care of it. Right? Let's radiate our compassion on the demons. Right? Internal, external, in some ways it doesn't matter. Right? Let's really remember the practices of transformation right? that, that are there for us if we want, if we want to take them up. And let's, 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 give, let's give our demons love. Right? That's, that's what they need. So, thank you everyone. And happy holidays. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.